Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Norris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a film or a record they go back to again and again for comfort. This time I'm talking to the writer and actor Larry Rickard. Larry is currently best known for his work on Ghosts, the hit BBC One sitcom where he plays the caveman Robin as well as the headless spectre Humphrey. He also co-wrote and created the show with five of his friends. So it's really neat that what Larry has chosen for his comfort blanket is another hit mainstream comedy starring six friends. The show Friends. This is part one of two, so there'll be two of these, another one along in a minute. Hope you enjoy it. down to see you which is very nice yes yeah thank you very much coming all this way it's beautiful brighton exactly it's a, it's a special it's a, like a road trip yeah and it was worth it because you've chosen something really lovely to talk about and a thing maybe that people don't talk about or aren't honest about how much they find comfort in it yeah it's become weirdly one of those guilty secrets i suppose it's a little bit like anything that's really popular it's like it's a little bit like saying well i quite like coldplay so <laughs> it was so big that you couldn't possibly be called and say that you were into it but in terms of the number of global laughs it's generated it's got to be up there and it's a book oh it's dr seuss <laughs> that book got me through some tough times there is a little child inside this man yes the doctors say if they remove it he'll die <laughs> there's an argument sometimes where people talk about things that they love mm. that that's about identity and there's a real temptation to say that I really love this thing because I can really nail my identity to it. Yeah. And it's sort of hard to nail our identity to ABBA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good and point. Yet, 
I think people should do that. I think you should say, and you've said to me, you're a really big fan of Friends. Yeah, be a really big fan of Friends. That's yeah. your identity. Yeah. Fine, great. It's so, true. It's normally, I suppose, everything's sort of, you know, cult and subculture. And so to yeah, go, yeah. I'm into that band. Only 10 other people I've ever met have liked, or <laughs> 400 people on my Facebook group. But yeah, to like something that too many people likes is kind of like not liking anything. I mean, it's, it's like it's lowest a... common denominator <laughs> liking. <laughs> yeah, it's a default thing. I thought it was, what was hilarious about Oasis is they went, we're really into the Beatles. And you went, yeah, kind of assumed you probably, <laughs> as a, being a band, you probably would yeah. be. But to, to find that in there and to happily admit it, mm. um, to not want to try too hard, just go, I just like this because it's good. Yeah. And very often people are really afraid to say that really popular things are really good. Well, I've noticed this particularly. I've, I've had conversations in the last couple of months with young people and they good were, and, and in both cases, completely by accident, the subject of the Beatles has come up and they were both really, really quick to tell me that they don't like the Beatles. Maybe and that's the, what you do. That's how you identify yeah, yourself by that's rejecting the it. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then I know I don't like the Beatles and several of my friends also don't like the Beatles. And I was like, okay, that's fair enough. I said outwardly, well, inwardly screaming. <laughs> you fools. You fools. But that's how you find subculture in something that's too big. But I think particularly because what we are talking about, whether you know this about your own podcast or not, is, you know, the idea of something being comforting. And I think part of that is, is in shared experience. And I think always yeah. there's something nice in friends about the fact that you could just almost pick a person at random and go, did you see that thing? And they'll get that joke and that reference and everyone knows who those characters are. And that's sort of part of the comfort of it, maybe. How you doing? I know! Hey, Dave, do you want to help? Oh, I wish I could, but I don't want to. We were on the plane! Yeah, you're always looking for those. It's very odd when you work in comedy and you're looking for comparisons and metaphors mm. and character notes, especially if you do them out loud in that, that way that, say, Marvel does something. They go, all right, Lebowski, when Thor yeah. comes in, you go, right, we all agree we've seen a film called The Big Lebowski. You're looking for those common references. Who do you think you are? And about 30, 40 years ago, you could say, who do you think you are? Russell Grant. Yeah. Everyone was watching television <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> who Russell Grant was. There are an agree- there's an agreed culture of mm. people. And we lack those big things that everyone can agree on. And they're great places to spring comedy from and spring companionship from and fellowship from, yeah. that you have a shared set of references. And um, yeah, it's what Harry Potter was for a while, isn't it? Everyone, you've said, all right, you're a bit Hufflepuff. Yeah, yeah. Or Star Wars, those big brands. And Friends is one of those brands that, even if you don't know the show, you probably know the names of the characters. Yeah, that's the weird thing. And I think also you kind of know weirdly the rough dynamics so everyone knows <laughs> Joey he's the one who's not so smart right? yeah yeah and I've had my share of bad reviews I still remember my first good one though everything else in this production of Our Town was simply terrible Joey Tribbiani was abysmal and you know, could Chandler be any more sarcastic <laughs> by osmosis it kind of bleeds out into society even people who've never seen it or caught the odd episode I can't believe you two had sex in her dream <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, it was a one-time thing. I was very drunk, and it was someone else's subconscious. It was so big. Do you think that's made it feel taken for granted? But well, let's take one last look at the nominees for Outstanding Comedy Series. Friends! And the winner is... Friends! When it first arrived, it was a sitcom. It was another sitcom. But within a couple of series, it's this global phenomenon. It's... it's it's given the world the name for a haircut. It's become a much bigger thing and yeah. changed the way people spoke, the rhythms of speech and things. Do you think people have forgotten it was a comedy show? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, but as soon as anything becomes that big, it's really hard to imagine a world before it was there. Yeah. I think it was David Crane. It was certainly one of the creators who was quite open about saying that it wasn't even the show that he thought was most likely to go to series that year that he had made. Wow. You know, it's like, <laughs> it wasn't like everyone went, this is a shoo-in. And, you know, personally, you know, my, my preference has always been to do things that are quite sort of high concept and yeah. you go there's a really graspable thing about them and that's the usp and the very fact that it's called friends and it's about some friends yeah it's sort of really hard to hang a peg on what it is and so it shouldn't work on paper okay everybody this is rachel and another lincoln high survivor this, this is everybody this is chandler and, and phoebe and joey and you remember my brother ross sure hey. it feels like it's of its time maybe is what its unique flavor is it's, it's usp yeah. is that it came out when it came out it's a gen x hangout sitcom of some sort what this is about is some people from the early 90s yeah you know a lot of people say this is a hot show for generation x generation x i guess implies that we're all aimless and we're just kind of hanging out listening to you know music and watching the brady bunch or something i don't know which we do <laughs> so it's sort of when you're pitching it it has no flavor at all because it's about now yeah and maybe uh it's increased in flavor and high concept as we've got further away from it so now you go oh it's about how we were Yes, well, exactly. It's about the ni 90s now. Whereas I suppose then if it was about anything, it was about people at that time of life before they end up in couples and having children and moving away. And yeah. it's not a friendship group anymore. It's sort of before people have their individual families, they have that adopted family, which is the mates they hang out with. Each of them has separate careers and uh, love interests and um, are, are in that phase of their lives where they're, they're not relying on their parents anymore for financial uh, stability and, and are not yet settled with with uh, a husband or wife, or, 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 or I was, but um, or, or kids. Um, and so we're in that kind of gray area where we're relying on our friends. It was pitched that way. That was the thing. It said, it's right. about that time in your 20s when your friends are your family. Yeah. And there was a, a great story. They originally wanted to have another generation in it because American sitcoms very rarely yes. are single generation. Maybe that's what was revolutionary about it. Maybe we don't know what's revolutionary about it because we weren't in the American sitcom system. It just looked like, looked like a slick, good-looking show to me. Yeah. But you realise that most American sitcoms had a generational thing. They had mums and dads in them and kids and mm -hmm. things. It's your standard network show. Yeah. Possibly with the exception of Seinfeld, which is just some people hanging out. Mm. It's very generational. And they originally pitched the idea that it would have an older guy in it called Pat the Cop. Right. And they and they tried a version they, and David Crane and Martin Kaufman went, No, it won't have an old guy called Pat the Cop. Right. But they put it in anyway. <laughs> it's like Sesame Street. Yeah. There's an old guy who goes, What are you up to? And it would maybe take the sting out of the fact that they were being, I don't know, promiscuous. He could frown at them. It would be a bit more happy daisy. There'd be sort of a Cunningham dad in there looking yeah. after them. And that might tell you what it was in yeah. terms of what it wasn't. As in they were used to having someone who'd give them the benefit of adult experience. And yet what's unique about Friends and maybe why it appealed to us when it came out was it was about people that age on their own. Yeah. Well, it's a problem for me, which means it's a problem for you because I'm a cop. <laughs> so am I. And people making mistakes and not being pulled up on them. You yeah. Know, which is the thing probably feels quite sort of liberating. Because when I was first watching it, they seemed like they were... Slightly older and slightly more sophisticated, but I think that was probably just because they were American. <laughs> so, like, you guys all have jobs? Yeah, we all have jobs. See, that's how we 
buy stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, I would have been in my what, late teens, very early 20s, and they would have been a couple of years older yeah. than me, but just seemed really, really... Because cool it it's very aspirational. Yeah. In a way that things like Dawson's Creek and things mm. were. What did you first think when you first watched it, when it came out? Because it came out to very little fanfare. It re- I mean, I think from really, really early on, it made me laugh. And it made me laugh out loud. And a lot of times, even with shows <laughs> that I really enjoy, I get to the end of it and I've sort of gone, oh, that was good. And I've got, did I laugh at any point in that? There might be moments that amuse me, but only sort of inwardly. But to get to the point where an actual audible sound comes yeah. out happens relatively rarely. I remember it making me laugh. I remember it feeling sort of, it was never edgy. But I remember when they started to do the repeats at one point, they were on early morning in Channel 4, like as you were getting ready for work, they started to repeat them all. And you could see the number of nips that had been taken out of it. And you go, actually, there is stuff in there which felt like it was a little bit edgier than you're expecting from what is such a mainstream. Because it's, it's an eight o'clock, it's a pre-Watershed yeah. show, and it's about sex. Yeah. Ah! Oh, God. Oh, honey. What? Oh no, you just rolled over the juice box. It's about people's slightly sort of feckless sexual adventures. Yeah. Even they'll call it dating, but there's definitely no doubt about the fact that from the first couple of lines, you're going to watch these people hook up. Yeah. And they will allude to what happened last night. Are we still talking about sex? <laughs> and it's on at eight o'clock. Hmm. I mean, I mean, now the show would be called My Feckless Sexual Adventures <laughs> and would would be, you know, a, a big hit on, on a streamer. Yeah. Well, this is, this is a mainstream show. And it's mm. the, the guys who've done it, Kurt, Crane and Kaufman, their previous show's Dream On, which was HBO. They've come from a cult hit whose big thing was it was incredibly frank about sex. Mm. I think we ought to do it. <laughs> and I think maybe... It's very weird now that it is now the show that everyone's sort of pre-teens are addicted to on streamers. Yeah. Because it's incredibly frank about sex. No, no, Homo habilis was erect. Australopithecus was never fully erect. Well, maybe he was nervous. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's sort of, you know, it's pre-sex education. That was, <laughs> yeah. about as, uh, that was about as hardcore as it went in comedy. Oh, a throw <laughs> Consider it done! You understood that? Yeah, my Uncle Sal has a really big tongue. (laughs) Is he the one with the beautiful wife? (laughs) Often what people say about Friends is it is a masterclass in how to do this. Because it opens with one of the, probably one of the most analysed opening scenes I've ever seen online by other writers. Setting up as many characters as possible in the minimum number of lines. And the first thing that strikes you if you're a comedy writer is that this is so well crafted. It is incredibly clear. There's nothing to tell. It's just some guy I work with. Come on. You're going out with the guy. There's got to be something wrong with him. So does he have a hump, a hump and a hairpiece? Wait, does he eat chalk? Just because I don't want her to go through what I went through with Carl. Um, okay, everybody relax. This is not even a date. It's just two people going out to dinner and not having sex. Sounds like a date to me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously the characters, you know, get refined and shaped and the hard edges taken off and things that might be slightly minor traits become more major. But the, yeah, there's no sense of going, right, this will be the episode in which we meet Phoebe. (laughs) You know, it all happens very, very quickly. But I suppose, you know, we always found that 
there was that division that naturally happened when we were writing ghosts where you go and if go there's a part of your brain that's going this is how many minutes we've got and this is how many people we've got to right. serve and so every line has to be doing several jobs in there it's got to be you know characterful doing its little bit for plot and pushing the story forward but also a gag and and I think that's what the the opening of Friends does. By the time you get to that first ad break, you know who all the characters are, what they're like, and what their sort of the dynamic among each other is. Yeah, it's it's a brilliant thing. It sets up because they're just hanging out and sitting yeah. down and having a coffee, and within four or five lines, you want to know who these guys are and what they're going to do next. And it's a brilliant set of breadcrumbs to tell you the history of everyone's relationships and how, what they think about each other. Yeah, and then into the middle of that, they drop at a crucial moment when you realise they've set up Ross with a complicated thing that he's a divorcee. I don't want to be single, okay? I just, I just, I just want to be married again. <laughs> and I just want a million dollars. They drop a bride on him. Yeah. At which point you go, oh God, it's a movie. That is the most high concept thing that happens. Yeah. But before then, they've just been hanging out. I just had to get out of there and I started wondering why am I doing this and who am I doing this for? So anyway, I just didn't know where to go and I know that you and I have kind of drifted apart, but you're the only person I knew who lived here in the city. Who wasn't invited to the wedding. Oh, I was kind of hoping that wouldn't be an issue. And you do think there's a version of this which opens with the jilted bride and goes, oh, it's about her and her journey into yeah, the yeah. city and finding a new friendship group. But instead of it, they flip round and you're with a a settled bunch of people first. Mm. So instead of following someone in yeah. who's the hero, and my God, Jennifer Aniston will probably, had probably made 10 films where that's the setup that she's jumped in yeah. and she, she runs away and finds a new family wherever they are, on the Orkneys, at the bottom of the sea. She's made those films. Yeah. Oh, I wish me luck. What for? I'm going to go get one of those job things. But you start with the settled group and it's a way of saying it's not about someone who started a new life. No. This is about a group of people. Hmm. You said we should do it again. That's good, right? Uh, no. Loosely translated, we should do this again means you will never see me naked. Mm. <laughs> Since when? Since always. It's like dating language, you know, like, it's not you means it is you. <laughs> or you're such a nice guy means I'm going to be dating leather-wearing alcoholics and complaining about them to you. <laughs> or, 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 you know, um, I think we should see other people means <laughs> I already am. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you're starting with it as an ensemble thing. Then you go, you, the traditional wisdom is always, you know, with anything where you're worrying about story and plot, is how quickly can you get through the first act yeah, yeah. to get to an inciting incident and start <laughs> these things off? And, you know, there must be a way we can lose a line and lose that page and that chapter and that beat and get it quicker, quicker, mm. quicker. Whereas I suppose if this is about an ensemble of people and how they in, interact with each other, you go, well, that's what we set up and what we enjoy. What we have is actually a really long first act. Yeah. And then one inciting incident comes in far too late you know, yeah. far later than you would naturally put it. So you want to tell us now, or are we waiting for four wet bridesmaids? <laughs> Weirdly, you may know this as a technician. I'm mean, certainly you and I have been doing it. We've been in writers' rooms on other things. Where that inciting incident happens, where a big character comes in, if you put that character in too late, the audience don't know they're important. Yeah. You know, I had this on Paddington, yeah, where yeah. Hugh Grant arrived too late. Yeah. And the preview audiences were going, 
who's that guy? Is he just a cameo? Yeah. And if that's to... a really big booking for a cameo. <laughs> yeah, as in, is he just going to be... And then people weren't following him. When he turned up again, people, oh, has he come back? Moving him further and further into that important first act where people are saying, give me the data. Who's it? Whose story is this? Yeah. Rachel, I think, in this arrives after the point I've stopped listening yeah. for who the hero is. So she's Gunter. She's another person in the yeah. cafe. I've decided that my best man is my best friend, Gunther. <laughs> What's my last name? Central Perk. Which is an amazing way of saying, don't worry about where she was. Yeah. It's just about these people, and they are all equal. It's really I remember, clever. I remember that, watching it, and feeling in the back of my I mind. Mean, this is before I was you know, a writer. I was at university when I first sort of got into it. I remember thinking that she was like a story of the week. Yes. So, Rachel, what are you, uh, what are you up to tonight? Well, I was kind of supposed to be headed for Aruba on my honeymoon, so nothing. <laughs> it feels like that. Yeah. Because she would arrive earlier yeah. if we were going to talk about The Jilted Bride. And also, she's got an important role in this in that she is a slight outsider who has to get to know the people. So yeah. normally what you do at the beginning is you bring someone in and say, meet the guys. Yeah. But she comes in after that. You don't follow her and she's not the audience's representative. Yeah. I never felt that. And that's not how you normally start a sitcom. And mm. I think that we probably underappreciate what a sea change in the ensemble sitcom this is. Because even though they're just hanging out in New York, it's not Seinfeld. Yeah. It's not named after one of them. And when it came to negotiating their fees, they negotiated together. Mm. There's no star. Yeah. It's not how an American sitcom usually works. It's certainly not how they tell these stories normally. No. Maybe it's more revolutionary than we remember. Because after this, everyone makes lovely ensemble stuff. Yeah. But I think it might be a big change in how America looked at big ensemble sitcoms. Yeah. Because they are all equal in that first episode, and it stays the same way. Do you all feel that way? Do you feel like the show really evolves around a single character, or, or it's more the interaction between all of you? <clears throat> yeah, oh, it's absolutely. It's, it's the entire cast together. To us down here, it just seems like we're all just a sort of a theatre group. You know? It's weird as well, when you look at it structurally, because it's sort of perfect, but... What feels so alien when you rewatch the first episode, having then watched multiple series that followed, is you're so used to the relatively quick pace cross cutting between story threads involving the different yeah. friends that that first half, when they do dissolves and the little, you know, yeah. and then they come back to the same people on the same set, <laughs> yes. it feels so alien. <laughs> Like, what have they cut out? Why did they just Where like, did Phoebe go? Yeah, exactly. she, she went, she came back, didn't she? Yeah, had an adventure and came back. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that, that feels really, yes. really unusual. But also, like you say, bringing in the fact that not only do they bring in Jennifer Aniston's character so late, but the fact that she's not brought in to set up a gag or set up a story. She's a punchline to a joke. Yes. I just want to be married again. So she feels deliberately flippant when she comes in. She's a punchline to a joke, you know, in terms of the format. Yeah, yeah. Someone literally set it up and in her appearance, yeah. the punchline. But also she's dressed as a punchline to a yeah. joke. And so you feel like she can't have any weight to her. And it was really surprising when you watch the second episode. Oh, she's still there. I wonder how long yeah. she's sticking around for. And it's only about like two, three episodes in that you're like, I think she might be a regular. <laughs> yes. I'm just going to settle down into this. Look, Daddy, it's my life. Well, maybe I'll just stay here with Monica. <laughs> well, I guess we've established she's staying here with Monica. So you're looking at characters like Rachel and going, is she one of the, is it six? 
Is it five and she's a floating character who comes yeah. in and out? Will she be in it for a few episodes and then disappear? That person who we're not seeing a lot of, Phoebe, is she just like a secondary friend? She doesn't yeah. live in the same building as the others. Is she a secondary character? And it takes you a while to go. It's all of them all the time and they come in and out of each other's lives, houses, places of work. Maybe that's why they don't intercut. Yeah. Because I remember thinking mechanically, as soon as you learn how Americans are trained to write sitcom, which is mm. ABC plot, yeah. was the classic syndicated studio sitcom is an A and B and C plot. And the best yeah. way to do an A and B and C plot is to have two characters in each plot. That gives you six people. I mean, it's a mathematically formulated show to generate A, B and C plots. You can swap them over. Yeah. But the idea is they all go on an adventure separately in twos. Yes. You mm-hmm. want them to pair off and go and have adventures. But if you did that in the first episode and you didn't like one of those plots, you'd go, the people who had that plot, they're not my favourites. Yeah. Even though it knows it can cut away to A, B and C plots, it doesn't do it for two episodes to say, no, look at all yeah. of them. Yeah. Get to them all. And then when we start to separate them off, you'll know how Phoebe and Monica will react to each other. You know how Ross and Chandler will react to each other. They've got their stated A, B and Cs and they start to split apart. But by then, you know them all. Yeah. Welcome to the real world. It sucks. You're going to love it. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, Rage, the big question is, does he like you, right? Because if he doesn't like you, this is all a moo point. Huh, a moo point? Yeah, it's like a cow's opinion. It just doesn't matter. It's moo. It's interesting as well seeing that sort of process of refinement and it happens a little bit across those first few episodes that you see actors finding their characters a little bit but I think particularly across the first season and going into series two when you think about Joey now you go he's a lovable idiot but you go when you first watch him he's a vain Lothario that's his character type you're feeling a lot of pain right now you're angry you're hurting can I tell you what the answer is Strip joints! <laughs> and then as he starts to become a little bit more of a, a lovable fool character, there's a period where there's a strange crossover with Phoebe and you start to go, where do those yeah. two characters sit differently? And she was, you know, ethereal and new agey. Oh my God, what do you want? We can, um, we can burn the stuff they gave us. Or 
Or, or we can chant and dance around naked, you know, with sticks. But the fact that she just thought differently as opposed to wasn't so smart, that suddenly that yeah. then found her, oh, that's what it is about her. She gets, she gets a whimsical brain, but they work out after a while he's a dog. Yeah. Which is weird, I think that's why you forgive the horniness, is you yeah. go, well, his behaviour is the yeah. same we expect from a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine you've borrowed that in... Yeah, and ghosts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, no matter how much you try and avoid being formulaic, it's funny how quickly, if you're trying to write something where it's an ensemble and you need character types for there to be interesting dynamics and stories to work, that you end up with one who's a bit based, a bit foolish, a bit stupid. Think about it, Robin. Anne has always looked up at the moon and thought, Can you eat it? No, can you walk on it? You need someone who fulfills that role. She spoke to me. What? She did not. Did, said, ah! I don't think that's a word, Robin. No. This, I had a cousin, that's all he said. What, or equally, someone who's, a, you know, just naive. Yeah. And those can be the same characters, those can be split. I suppose, you know, the equivalent, uh, like Kitty might be the, the closest equivalent we have to a Phoebe in yeah. Ghosts, that you sort of have someone who's naive and open, but equally, you know, there's a sort of side to her and, you you know, you wouldn't cross. Fine, but I'm not letting you go in my canoe. Weirdly, you, you need something that sits in that role. I suppose Robin's a little bit... He's the most foolish character in, in Ghosts, but also there's an unexpected wisdom oh, that yeah. sometimes comes from him, and that's something that you get from Phoebe because yeah. she's got street smarts as well you know she's I love very that mu- I love her backstory I remember when I first came to this city I was 14 my mom had just killed herself and my stepdad was back in prison and I got here and I didn't know anybody and I ended up living with this albino guy who was like cleaning windshields outside Port Authority and then he killed himself <laughs> yeah she's, she's lived more than they have yeah because I like as their backstories start to reveal themselves you realise they've all got depths yeah. beneath the initial characters what you're setting up, hopefully, for anyone watching a sitcom, Ghosts or Friends, is mm. to say, you know these people. Yes. I'm Chandler. I make jokes when I'm uncomfortable. They remind you not only of people from other sitcoms, because that's a really good shorthand. It mm-hmm. really does help. And that's just, God, that's clowning. That's fine. Yeah. There are set clown troops. There are, this has been around since Commedia dell'arte. Yeah. How do you think Carry On works? There's a horny one and a vain one. and There's a fluttery one. They've all got different roles. But you also recognise them from your life, mm. from your family, from your workplace. I love the fact that Blackadder works because it's just a workplace analogue. Yeah. He's got bosses and minions and he's in the middle. He's middle management. Yeah. It's just a workplace sitcom set in the past. They are somewhere else, but you recognise them from your ordinary life. Mm. And there's a thing in Friends where that's a family, that yeah. the moniker is slightly mumsy. And, and, but occasionally they'll swap roles again, like happens in Ghosts. Mm. Suddenly Phoebe will suddenly become incredibly maternal and an incredibly soft place to land. Yeah. They can switch between them, but they are always an analogue of something with which you're familiar. And you as an audience then go, well, I know what they'll do because that's what my dog does. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, did you get the turkey bait? Oh, my God! Oh, my God! <laughs> Who is that? It's Joey. <laughs> I can't. It's stuck. I don't care that that turkey has to feed 20 people at my parents' house and they're not going to eat it off your head. One of the interesting things with any ensemble set of characters is everyone immediately goes, that's my favourite. Did you ever think where you watched it and and suddenly I was in a shared house and everyone chose their favourite immediately? You weren't allowed anyone else's favourite in my house. You had to choose one each. (laughs) Yeah, that's always... But I think you always sort of slightly... One, it's that weird thing about comedy where you, you want to be the person who gets 
the jokes the most <laughs> or, or you know that that you want part of it to be yours and i suppose yeah. as soon as you're going oh i like that character that you really like that that sense of ownership is maybe slightly diluted i mean i was always it's probably telling actually now i'm thinking about it and maybe that's why partly why Robin ended up being the way he is, but I was always uh, a huge fan of Joey. Yeah. Just because, you know, he's a simple soul. Yeah. But he's not a traditional idiot. You know what I mean? He's not the yeah. village idiot. In fact, he's sort of the most aspirational of all of them in that he want, literally wants fame and fortune. Yes. And uh, if anyone needs help pretending to like it, I learned some things in acting class. Try uh, rubbing your stomach. <laughs> Saying, hmm, and uh, oh, oh, smiling. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to pay for those acting classes anymore. And in some ways, achieves the most in that, despite all of the failings he's got <laughs> as a character, he ends up being a regular character on yeah. a syndicated US. And it's, and so it's a show popular. about it's a show about people who are losers in love, and mm. he is not a loser in love. Please, could she be more out of my league? Ross, back me up here. He can never get a woman like that in a million years. Thank you, buddy. If the aim is constantly to be dating, he's always dating. Yeah, yeah. And, and he gets those women. He weirdly always made me think they bunged a load of the characters from Cheers together in a blender. So he had Sam Malone plus Woody. So he's yeah. this incredible womanizing, charming sort of guy, but completely guileless and, and innocent as mm. well. I mean, he got all the dumb jokes as well. Yeah. It's a potent comic weapon, is Joey. It tastes like feet. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Are you kidding? What's not to like? Custard? Good. Jam? Good. Meat? Good. I think he's sort of like, he's like a really good pop song. <laughs> and then you have Chandler like a deep cut album track. <laughs> and, and you have, you get the idea that love interests would come in and they did this as something they did more than once but love interests come in and immediately are drawn to joey and then it takes a little bit of time and then you realize that actually chandler's sort of more rounded and funnier yeah. and kinder and, i was, uh, I was trying know. to work out what chandler's essence is straight away because everyone said at the time he gets the best lines yeah and it feels like he's the only thing they imported from seinfeld Hmm. he's the one who's cynical and flip and he's got that I mean even that the, could it be any more that yeah. dialogue that's Seinfeld dialogue well maybe you're going about this the wrong way you know I mean think about it single white male divorced three times two illegitimate children <laughs> the personal ad writes itself uh, that's funny uh, do, so do you think you'll ever work again what are you doing? You know I can only dish it out. Yeah, so he's got a stand-ups, mm. an American stand-up in a sitcom's rhythm. Yes. He would be the lead in a in another show that had a lead. He'd be yes. the cynical guy who's unlucky Absolutely. in love with his horny best mate and his dar friends. Yeah. Do you like some gum? Oh, is it sugarless? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, it's not. Oh, then no, thanks. What the hell was that? <laughs> Mental note, if Jill Goodacre offers you gum, you take it. If she offers you mangled animal carcass, you take it. But this one, they've made them all leads. I was watching it again and going, oh my God, I hadn't realised how much he's got that. Hmm. Very Gen X, very hip, yeah. laconic thing that probably we now go, oh, that's just the friend's tone. Yeah. But would have felt quite cool at the time. Well, I think he's... 
part of the character trait I've given him is he's sharp and funny, which means he's got carte blanche to do jokes. Yeah. You know, whereas the others are like, you know, he's doing that thing that I remember when I sort of started out in writing that they, they told you to do the complete opposite of that. And they're like, you've just got to be true to the character and everything's got to come from character. Yeah. And there's always a bit of me that was like, but if you structure something like that and like that, it's a really funny gag. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was sort of frowned upon to put like gags in, into dialogue because and particularly if in some ways you had to slightly not crowbar but delicate, delicately nudge a character to make the gag fit yeah that it, all of the others it feels like most of their comedy comes from their characters and the situation whereas Chandler sort of is given the rights to go I'm going to do a joke here alright when was 1990 <laughs> okay you have to stop the Q-tip when there's resistance He's the writer's room. He's the yeah, writer's room yeah. with that. So you need space for those gags. And I think what's lovely about this and any good ensemble comedy mm. is that the idea is to have someone in each key that the joke can bounce off. Yeah. So if it needs to go in one direction, there's always... I compare it to a pinball table. Mm. You fire the pinball of a joke in and it should bounce off yeah. and score as many points off the mushrooms as possible. So you have to position them in places where it'll, the ball will definitely bounce off them. So you don't cluster them all in one place. So they're not all Chandler. They're not all yeah. witty. They're not all dumb. They're not all sexually underconfident or overconfident. So a joke that's sexually underconfident can bounce off Ross and an overconfident can bounce off Joey. Wherever that joke goes, the audience will know yeah. when it goes ping off that mushroom, they go, that's the right mushroom, thousand points. Mm. And you maximise your score for any joke. So very often you only need to fire one joke into uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine's yeah. squad room or the Friends coffee shop or Fraser's coffee shop or uh, the bar in Cheers. It will bounce off everyone because they're perfectly positioned and they cover areas that no one else is covering, like a netball team with those yeah. tabards on. <laughs> They've got positions and it's great that one of them has just gone, if there's a writer's room gag, we give it to the guy who represents that feeling the writers have. It doesn't matter how funny I am, I'm just a schlub in the corner and yeah. no one's listening. <laughs> it makes him hard to pin down for that reason because he's sort of like, in, it makes it, in terms of the comedy, he's sort of the most important because he's got the, the banner out that's going, I'm the funny one in this comedy. Yeah. And yet he's sort of the hardest to pin down as a character type where you go, okay, there's a nerdy one, there's a neurotic one, <laughs> yeah. there's a stupid one, you know, and you go, what is... Chandler, he's sort of the funniest, which makes it feel like he's going to be the lightest, but he's also, in some ways, the darkest and the slightly most troubled, and he's a bit underconfident and unsure of himself. He's low he's status. cynical, yeah. He's, very good. He, he's, he's high status comedically, as yeah. I'm the funniest guy here, but making up for the fact that he's low status and that he hates his job and no yeah. one takes him seriously, his romantic life's a disaster. He's a lovely blend of those things, so he's not a smart ass. Bastard, mm. so you still like him. And if you look at how they broke people down, that first series is a great masterclass in how they introduce people to give them their tags. You know Monica's neurotic. She's putting out coasters and things like that. Yeah. They take a while to push the contrast up on her as much as they don't do on the other characters. She's yeah. definitely carrying some vanilla flavouring to mm -hmm. say, this is just someone you can understand. She's sympathetic, but she's a bit brittle. Yeah. Someone's left a glass on the coffee table. There's no coaster. It's a cold drink. It's a hot day. Little beads of condensation are inching their way closer and closer to the surface of the wood. Stop it! <laughs> it was interesting, Courtney Cox fought for that part. Right. Because she was the most experienced sitcom yeah, yeah. person. And she said, I think she's the strongest and the most interesting person. They wanted to cast her as Rachel because they thought she's quite sunny and upright. Right. And she went, no, I want to be that. And I, I think she's brilliant. She, yeah, yeah. She's taking a very unpromising part and she holds it for a long time in that first season, she's holding it together. Hmm. I can't stop smiling. <laughs> I 
can see that. You look like you slept with a hanger in your mouth. I know. I know. He, he is just so... You remember you and Tony DeMarco? Oh, yeah. Well, it's like that, with feelings. She's got a lot of the story weight on her and things. It takes her a while for her to get really funny stories about being anxious. Yes. Um, whereas you bring Rachel in and she sweeps in and she's spoilt. Yeah. She's a princess. And you go, a thousand jokes. Come on, you can't live off your parents your whole life. I know that. That's why I was getting married. Because you know who that is. And her relationship with Rachel having come from school and they can tease each other. I didn't realise they put the fat joke in straight away. Yeah. That Monica was fat at school. Some girl ate Monica. <laughs> The camera adds 10 pounds. Uh, so how many cameras are actually on you? Which everyone finds really problematic now. Yeah. But weirdly is a great note because yeah. we should talk about one of the big issues with the Friends is they are all beautiful. Yeah. Even the Nevish, even Ross is an astonishingly, be- they are just beautiful people. Yeah. So you've got to give them loads of character to make the audience understand they're not absolutely alpha. Yeah. No one ever listens to me when the package is this pretty. No one cares what's inside. You, you have to really make sure you dial up their flaws. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's where the company's coming from. Yeah, yeah. Is Rachel here? I'm her sister. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, this is Chandler. Hi. And you know Monica and Ross. Hi, and that's you. Phoebe. And that's Joey. Hey, how are you doing? Don't. You're not aware of it because that's the only version that exists. If there had been a British version of Friends, <laughs> and then you saw that, and when they've made everybody beautiful, there's, a, there's the famous Red Dwarf pilot <laughs> yes, exactly. where, you know, they've made they've made Lister into kind of this handsome jock, and you go, no, 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 no. Can, no, we, no. can we pretend this is an alternate universe where this is the American version of Peep Show? Yeah. <laughs> And it went really, really big. We barely remember the British version, but the American version was sexy. Yeah, yeah. But it, I think my first reaction when I first watched it was to go, I really liked American comedy. I was a really big fan of Taxi, a really big fan of Cheers. Uh, I loved and I liked Seinfeld and things. And Friends came out and I watched it and went, oh my God, I won't watch this because these people are too pretty to be yeah. funny. where's Danny DeVito? Yeah, where's, the where, where, where's Andy Kaufman and <laughs> Christopher Lloyd? Yeah, it used to be there was one guy, there was one good-looking yeah, guy. Yeah, exactly. We, you're all Sam Malone, what's yeah, going the on The rule there? is one Fonz per show, and right. you're here to have six Fonzes and some of them are girls. Yeah. It was like watching Days of Our Lives. It looked like an American soap. Hmm. And I was immediately British cynical of it until I realised how funny it was. And then watching it again now, I realised how much work they're doing. They are a massively attractive cast. Yeah. But they're doing a lot of work to say, no, we are playing characters. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to really, really be do, yeah, doing hard graft to go, don't worry, see through how beautiful we are to how damaged we are. <laughs> yes, it's great. It's, it's really clever. And I think that, yeah, my cynicism about it was say, this is a slick show. Yeah. Not realising it was a slick show writing production no, but it, it's it looked you know, too slick it's yeah it's very network yeah yeah it's definitely slick and particularly you know it's multi-camera and studio and that carries with it certain expectations as well it's bright and stark and everything that you expect from that and part of that is the fact that this cast come in and they're all smiley and beautiful and i think the first thing i thought when i saw it was i wasn't expecting it to be terribly well written yeah because it looks like there were plenty of those shows that were also rans the things i don't really want to mention any by name but the sort of things that would end up playing like late afternoon on channel four and there's there were enough series of it for it to be syndicated but it's broadly forgettable and i suppose that's what i was expecting from it from how it looked yeah but the characters 
were better, more flawed, and it was funnier. Maybe that's what it did, is that it had the, the shell and the delivery system of an extremely slick syndicated studio product. Mm. But its creators had come from HBO, where they yeah. would have been allowed to do Edge. I mean, that's that's the, the subscription thing. You don't have to have big audiences. They brought those values and that frankness about sex and a bit of darkness. Mm-hmm. And it comes in... There was an accusation levelled at it by Cameron Crowe. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know this one, that Cameron Crowe said, that was my idea. Right. And he had been pursued by the studio to get the TV rights to his film Singles. Right. The Gen X yeah, yeah. grunge relationship between Bridget Fonda and Matt mm-hmm. Dillon and people. In the absence of sex, you go for companionship. Uh, you want to get some dinner? Or busy. Uh, how about some lunch? Have a lunch. Coffee? Water? Great film. Completely forgot. I remember really enjoying that film. And it was about dating. And he said they tried to develop it and it failed. And then a couple of years later, this thing comes out that is basically built on the chassis of Gen Xers right. hanging out post-grunge. Yeah. Soon you're just happy to have a friend. You know, in a parallel universe, we're probably a scorching couple. But in this one, neighbours. But it's got those values of a... Richard Linklater yeah, kind yeah. of grunge. Underneath all that slickness, what they're talking about, when Shanda delivers a very dark line or Phoebe talks about her mum's death or mm-hmm. the undercurrents of this are grungy. Yeah. But it's got that feeling of, you know, when Sonic Youth objected to there being a grunge fashion show, you went, oh, actually, you're at some point, the corporate machine will go, be great if they were really well showered and their hair was yeah. great. But it's, it's kind of a, a Kevin Smith movie, but yeah, when everyone's yeah. had a bath. Yeah, exactly. But, I'm not sure about the Sex Pistols. What about Blondie? Could this yeah. Be? yeah. Yeah. It's been cleaned up, but it's values and it's dialogue and being, I'm, I'm Gen X, you're Gen X. Hmm. It was speaking to me. And the weird thing was to watch these very slick people talking in the dialogue that you'd expect from maybe a John Favreau movie yeah. from Swingers and things. It had those values of a little American indie movie in the yeah. jokes. And that felt really cool. You went, oh, actually, do I want to watch the kind of indie movie that would normally have a couple of kind of quirky looking people in it? But these people are beautiful. Do you know what? I'll happily watch that. Yeah. <laughs> and do you know who else I'll will watch that? I think just about everybody. Yeah, and it yeah. was reselling a sense of humour, I think, a slightly cynical sense of humour yeah. in a very slick package. Yeah. And once you got over going, They've wrapped it in really nice wrapping. It was bloody lovely, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> All my life, waiting for somebody. Uh-huh. Come and take my hand. All my life, waiting for somebody. Let's take a break there. That's the end of part one. Part two along, well, pretty soon, as soon as I've finished editing it, in which Larry will talk more about Friends, uh, how that show works, and how his own show works, and the relationship between the two, and what it's like to be in a hit comedy with six mates. I think he should know. Anyway, look forward to that. Part two coming very soon. See you there. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media, and don't forget to like and subscribe.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.